I do remember when I was I was up there and then Jerry got it to the top and I remember the first the first thing he looked at me and said, "This is not good." I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I know. I'm sure, <laughs> but there, here we are. I'm sure there was another expletive or two <laughs> smashed in there somewhere. Yeah, at, at certain times there was some wait time. I think maybe we were hauling ropes up, and I looked at Mark. I believe I said, "You know how much annual leave I have." <laughs> <laughs> Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. And what started developing the idea for this podcast, uh, it was really about the fire service culture, traditions, uh, legends, and legacies. And uh, the first two of the first names that popped into my head that I really wanted to do an episode with were these two guys that are are here with me today. Uh, For a couple of reasons. One, I got to work on the same shift with the two of them on an engine for a a while. uh, And we got a couple of stories about that to tell. Uh, But more importantly, uh, one of the biggest incidents in the county's history that they, they were involved in personally, and we'll dive pretty deep into that as we get into this. So uh, this, uh, those incidents in that time together was probably early 1990s, uh, 90, 91, 92 time frame. And um, so with that, I'm going to just go ahead and say uh, welcome to the guests. Uh, first and probably with the most seniority I know at this table and probably in the whole department at this point, is uh, Captain Jerry Pruden. Jerry, how you doing? I'm good, Robbie. How are you? Good, good. So are, are you the number one on the seniority list now? I am now both uh, operation side and civilian side. Uh, when Sue Hubble retired back in October, uh, she had me by a couple years. I think she came here when she was like eight. And um, But I've got 40 years, so I'm, oh, wow. I'm top seniority on operations. There you go. And you started when you were, what, 10 <laughs> yeah. or, or 9, maybe. <laughs> So let's talk about that for a little bit. Uh, what, which recruit school were you in? What year? Well, it's, it's kind of funny. I came in when I got hired. Um, Sue Hubble actually called me. I was on a job. I was making uh, $9,486, and I was in a lot of money then. And she called me and offered me the job, and she said, uh, but there's one caveat. She said, it's it's a temporary position. I'm like, hmm. I had a full-time job with benefits, and uh, I said, do I have to let you know anything today? She said, no, um, I'll call you back tomorrow. When she called back tomorrow morning, the next morning, I was living in Fredericksburg, so I was going to have to move, lose my job and move down here. She called me back, and she said, well, something has changed. She said the job is now a permanent position. And what that was, um, I don't know if you guys know him or not, but uh, there was a guy that was working here as a firefighter that had a part-time job installing shelving warehouse shelving and he had falling off fallen off of one of those shelving units and had a spinal injury and was paralyzed from about his chest down and so I was going to be temporarily filling in his position and then different things happened and then and that guy was Neil Steenberg and I um I had the opportunity to meet him and go to uh, Fishersville with some of my shift mates back then and we went up there and saw him but that's whose job I originally took so when she offered it to me as full-time I said yes I'll be there well there was a recruit school already in so I came in in the last four weeks of recruit school 11 and we did a couple live burns or back then recruit school was only 12 weeks long I mean yeah 12 weeks long so uh, I was in for a month of that and then we finished I didn't graduate I got sent back to the fire station for about 14 months and then had to come back to recruit school 12. So that's my official recruit school was recruit school 12. It's what I graduated from. Do you have to go through all of 12 or did you only have to go through what you missed? I had, well, I had to go through all of it. And when I came into recruit school, I was cut loose as an engine operator and a tiller on operator on truck too <laughs> and off probation. So already ready to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, what year was that? Uh, I got hired in 81. Did you had you worked in the emergency services before? Or was this just kind of a hey, this looks like a good idea? No, uh, I, I was not one of those kids that grew up and thought I wanted to be a firefighter all my life. Uh, as going through high school, I had my uh, heart set on going to Virginia Tech and being an architect. I had been accepted into that program, 
And at 16, a good friend of mine, he was our senior class president, talked me into uh, taking an EMT class and becoming a member of Fredericksburg Junior Rescue Squad. And not a lot of people know I started in the rescue squad because they know I can't stand <laughs> EMS for 40 <laughs> years. <laughs> uh, so I, I took that class and um, was riding on the rescue squad. And just like we do around here, the, the rescue squad would run fire calls and standbys. And I got to know some of the city firefighters and watched what they were doing. And I said, well, I'm going to try that out. That looks a little bit more fun. And, but nobody would take you as a volunteer up in Spotsylvania at that time until you were 18. And I had another good friend that was a little bit older than I was. He was in there. And as soon as I turned 18, I joined the fire department. And the reason I didn't go to tech, I had, had, was going to wait a year. My father had passed away when I was 16. So I said, I'm going to work a year and save up some money to help my mom so I didn't you know, to pay for school. I've never been back on the campus of Virginia <laughs> Tech, and, and I don't have any regrets. I, um, I'm, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my career, and no regrets at all about not being an architect. Yeah. You know, but uh, that's that's how I got into it. And uh, once I started in it, and uh, it it just got in my blood, and that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. And uh, probably one of the early members of the dive team as well still still working the dive team stuff that's really honestly that's one of the reasons i applied here i um uh, back then it was lieutenant creasy who was my cousin and he was on the dive team and of course it, it, it coming down back down here visiting my grandmother and talking to him um I'd, i've always had an interest in scuba diving as a kid and um took my first lessons when i was 18 with the intent of, of coming down here and getting a job here cool. and was lucky enough to, to get in. Cool. Well, that's a whole nother episode uh, about the dive team and how it got started. Uh, I've already talked to Rick Butcher and oh, good. Perry Taylor. They're, yeah. they're interested in doing it. So they're to be announced kind of thing. We'll yeah. get with them on here too. Good deal. Let's jump over to Mark. Mark Berry, battalion chief, uh, working in the western part of the county. Um, what recruit school were you in? I was in recruit school 21. So the – Relative rookie because I was in fourteen. So yeah, it was in '89. Uh, so yeah, I'm the I'm the young kid on the block here. Well, you weren't you weren't new to emergency services. What were you doing before you came here? Well, I was in law enforcement. I uh, had a brief stint there before I decided that I needed to to make a transition over to the fire side. Um, and I enjoyed that for a little while, but uh, I think my heart was in the fire service, and that's where I wanted to be. Uh, you studied a little bit harder, took the test, did better, and <laughs> came over to the fireside. Pass, yeah, I did. Passed my firefighter one and two test. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here we go. No, it. Uh, and my tie back to Chesterfield was that we. I lived in Chesterfield County till I was thirteen, and then my parents uh, decided to purchase a farm down in the King and Queen in the Middle Peninsula, and we we moved down there. But in my early years in Chesterfield my father was a volunteer out at station 10 and he was the president out there and he was a, a lieutenant out there and I kind of grew up in that fire station hanging out with a lot of those guys Will Anderson who was a longtime district chief out there and so that was my tie back to Chesterfield and, and my brothers as well you know he worked he worked yep. here also but that's how we kind of transitioned back to Chesterfield because it was where we were we were raised and then um, again kind of in just seeing the uh, firehouse through through a kid's eyes, and you know, you never really get over it. So yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I didn't know Jerry was in the rescue squad up in Fredericksburg, and <laughs> yeah. it's probably a good thing you didn't tell anybody that in the day. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know your dad was at number ten, Mark. That's uh, yeah. And you got you got on the dive team as well during your career, didn't you? I did. I was assigned. You'll never guess who my first supervisor was out of drill school. Yeah, that guy, the Jerry guy over here to yeah. my left. Jerry I, I think we had a, we had that same supervisor somewhere in there yeah, together. Yeah. yeah, so Jerry was actually my first supervisor. You know, um, I'll talk a little bit about this later, but I, I really think that for the for supervisors out there, company officers, you, the impression you have on a new firefighter and how you invest in them and time you spent, 
is going to affect them for the rest of their career. So uh, I'm ever indebted to Jerry because, you know, I couldn't ask for a better person to get me started going in the right direction and helping me along and, and doing those things. So. Right. Let's move forward, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know you outrank him, so you don't have to suck up. No, I, I know that. Okay. And that's not about rank. It's about respect. There you go. So, but no, and uh, so, I, uh, yeah, and after a couple of years at Station 14, I was able to get on the dive team, and I spent uh, – I was on there till I, I got promoted to battalion chief, and they – then, uh, so I put about 10 or 12 years on that. It's probably some good training with some really good people. Yep. And uh, like I said earlier, we were we were assigned to, this is how far back this goes, to engine 143, mm-hmm. 14 back in the day. And uh, we, uh, we there was the three of us and uh, the, the mayor of Enon, Jeff Cox. <laughs> uh, so Jeff, uh, shout out to Jeff Cox. He, I don't know if he keep, kept us straight or we were keeping him straight, but uh, – one of the one of, and texting back and forth today or was it yesterday? We it, things come to me, come to mind and come to memory, and I've got a picture on my wall in my home office. It's um, you can't tell who it is, but it's the front of this house in the dark, mm-hmm. three stories, maybe four or five thousand square feet down in Rivers Bend, and there is fire blowing out of every window and every door in that house. <clears throat> and uh, I'm sitting on a two and a half, in a in a loop trying to spray water on the house and Jerry's standing right beside me and uh we were all three on engine 143 that day yeah. uh, you guys remember that call oh yeah yeah yep. I was I took a draw hydrant yeah on per- oh yeah yeah I remember that because that's yeah. that we were sitting there and the, the hose went limp and uh, yeah. I said Jerry what happened to the water and, and you said uh we don't have a hydrant yet yeah I think it was a couple because six took one that was dry too didn't it yeah well we like we were stopped at the hydrant and getting ready to lay a line and uh Chief Mauger was the battalion chief. He said, I got a hydrant pass. I want y'all to come here and reverse out from the sink. So we got back on the unit, went down. I, I was driving the engine, stopped in front of the house, and uh, we got off, pulled lines, pulled some ap- appliances off, went to, to the intersection, turned right, went up, took the hydrant, and uh, getting ready to do the flush. So I took the dust cap <laughs> off. I kept turning and turning, and nothing but a little dust came out of it. I'm like, well, this is going to be a problem. <laughs> but uh, we quickly overcame and got some more water established. But I think there was so much fire there. We would have had the Atlantic Ocean there. We still wouldn't have put that <laughs> yeah, one Yeah, we wouldn't have done yeah, much it to was, it. It was, it was truly fully involved from the time we pulled up. You mm-hmm. know, and you see here, Rob, you got that was 1991. At that time, Rivers Bend was one of the more prestigious subdivisions of the newer subdivisions. You know, it wasn't the um, Salisbury, but at that end of the county anyway – that that was huge homes yeah. back then and the value and i remember this from the report specifically that at the time that was the largest dollar loss in a single family dwelling that the county had ever had because wow. if you if you remember the house was full of antiques yeah, family so was away on a ski trip or something yeah, the contents were valued at five hundred thousand, and the house was valued at at five hundred thousand. so it was a, a million, million dollar loss um, now we've got houses that cost that much or more in mm-hmm. areas of the county but uh that was that was a huge loss for the those folks yep and uh it, it was still part of the development of rivers bend i think yeah. that was kind of the challenge right. of some of those hydrant systems and those lines hadn't been turned on yet right. because right. we were back in the back part of the subdivision this was right. one house in the middle of a mm-hmm. block that with no other houses around it thank right. goodness yeah. because the exposures would have been a problem and oh yeah there was an exposure that had a problem because when we ran out of water, we were going to put the ladder pipe up. And I remember the setting the two-and-a-half down and, and looking over at the ladder truck, which had nosed up in the driveway, and seeing yeah. Tommy Cromer. And I said, hey, Tommy, what do you need? He All he said was, find me a brush truck before we burn the ladder truck down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think yeah. the uh, little light uh, – the uh, we had those uh, – what do you call them, bubble gums on, yeah, the, on tops? Those yeah. Beacons, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I think one of them was starting to drip on <laughs> yeah. the front of the unit. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that uh, when when Company Six got there again. That time they were were all volunteer, and the, the guy, the poor guy that was driving, was having some issues uh, getting some water. And I went over to Jeff Cox and very explicitly gave him directions to go get me some kind of water out of that fire engine to help that guy <laughs> on the truck. Well, I didn't know it till later. Mark tells me, you know, that was just brother. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh no, <laughs> I discussed his brother and. Yeah, that was that was quite the night. 
I think the other thing on that fire call was I think Chief Mauger, when they asked him, you know, what, what did he need as far? He said, give me everything you got. Yeah. I think he was talking about GPMs, and I think they interpreted it as pressure because <laughs> yeah. they, they were pumping at such a high pressure. Remember, couldn't he open the gates? Yeah, and bail right. on Once we finally got water, it was yeah. there. Yeah, so we had, you know, we had plenty of pressure. And that uh, the only injury out of that, thankfully, was uh, a minor injury to Roger Hicks. And uh, I think <laughs> he stepped out of the engine, twisted his knee, and yeah. off to the MLT went. Yep, exactly. Yep, roll down the ditch. <laughs> uh, one other one that came to my mind, and I don't know, Jerry, if you were still there, I think, or if um, JP had come to be the lieutenant at 14 yet. But uh, there was a night when I think we were sitting around after dinner, and Mark says something to Chief Marger, how about going to get some ice cream? We'll buy if you go to the store and get it. And Margaret said, well, here, take my car. <laughs> and a thunderstorm had just blown through the area. And uh, Mark had been gone, I don't know, five or ten minutes. And beep. <laughs> Margaret goes, uh-oh. <laughs> beep. Uh-oh. <laughs> and it was, you know, 14 and 12. You know, we were first due to a, a house struck by lightning. And uh, I remember the engine, I was on the truck, and uh, the engine pulled out, and Margaret standing on the front ramp going, we kept saying, come on, Gil, get on the truck with us. Get no, I know he's coming back. I know about that time you could see Mark coming down Route 10 with the red lights and siren on to pick up the battalion chief, and off we went. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I guess we can tell those stories now. That's a few years gone by. He, he was he was always famous for those kind of tricks. When he, I was at Company 1, he used to come up and do PT with us. And we'd run across the street from Company 1 and go back in the old village. There's a field back there now. And we'd run over to the railroad tracks and just start running up the trails by the railroad tracks. And we would run and run and run and run. And next thing you know, we're going past Bermuda Run. <laughs> I said, Chief, do you know where we're at? He said, yeah. So what am I going to do if I get on that engine? There's, I have nothing left that I can run back to the fire station. He said, don't worry about it. You with me. Said, okay. <laughs> yes, sir. Keep on running. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd be back at the station within two minutes when you're yeah. running, right? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, any other incidents you guys remember uh, from your careers other than this one we're going to talk about that uh, really highlight uh, some of your There's career? one. This was before you were there, Robbie, that I'll never forget this one. I, I, I don't know Mark was there. I don't know how long you had been working, but um, when Mark came out of recruit school and came to 14 and to work with me, I had just gotten promoted. I got promoted when his school came out. And I actually got two people out of his recruit school. I got Captain Yates, Bill Yates was our second. And Jeff Cox was my senior guy with uh, probably a year and a half at the time. And uh, we were at 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning. We're all in the bed sleep. And the next thing you know, you hear somebody banging on the bay doors. The front door bell is ringing, and the tones are going off. Oh, this is going to be something here. Well, we got dispatched for the Western Sizzler. That was over on uh, Jeff Davis, which through the woods, was you could probably throw a rock over through the woods mm -hmm. and hit it. And uh, when we got up in the front seat of the engine, you could see fire coming over top of the trees. And here I am, brand new lieutenant. It's probably I know it was my first working fire as an officer, and I'm sure it was yours. It was my second. And Jeff and Mark were riding in the jump, I mean, Bill and Mark riding in the jump seat, and we had fire through the roof at Western Sizzler and ended up, getting in, making a pretty good attack, and uh, made the decision with the fire was all way over our head um, and made the decision to come out and it went to a ladder pipe operation. And that's, that was the end of that Western Sizzler. <laughs> I was think a, it, it kind of came in soon as, not shortly after we moved back, I moved out of the building, it, it collapsed in. And that was one of the ones, I think it started over the, in the, over the uh, grease fire, yeah. and one sprinkler hit above it, didn't activate, and it got up above it, and then got into, into the yeah. roof line. Yeah. yeah, but it was that one where you know the doorbells ringing, people banging on the door windows, and What's tones wrong? are going. Are off, there supposed so to be flames coming out of the <laughs> top of the scissor? Well, I remember one. Mark and I were in the jump seat of 143, and JP was the officer, and we got punched out to a medical call at Roadrunner Trailer Park. <laughs> About the time we pull up, the ambulance is right behind us. We see a trailer on fire over in, what was that? Greenlee. Greenlee. You can see it from there. 
And JP was ALS, you were ALS, and I, we were fighting over who was going to stay with the ambulance. <laughs> yeah. And both of us are suiting up, and ring, the SCBA bell's coming on, and JP yeah. goes, one of you two get out. And we said, you're the only one without an air pack, you go. That's right. Yeah, he, opened, he opened this line glass window, and it's like, who wants to go to the hospital? I think all he heard was two air packs being charged. He goes, I'll get out. Yeah. I think uh, Bensley ended up having yeah, John had, King. John on. King was with it, and he jumped back in the engine, and off yeah. we went. That was fun. <laughs> All right, well, let's, uh, let's dig into the one big call uh, that kind of came to mind when I started thinking about this podcast. And uh, this incident happened October 25th, 1994 at the Dutch Gap Power Station and involved uh, confined space rescue, a high angle and technical rescue, uh, some creativity and plenty of nerves of steel. Uh, a worker had been at the top of a 300-foot-tall smokestack and had fallen to the inside of his on the inside of the smoked stack when his fall was arrested by some of his safety equipment. And he was still hanging on to, on the inside of the smoke stack, about 75 feet below the top lip. And uh, to kind of give you an illustration of um, the situation and what uh, these two guys faced, I'm going to read a, kind of a summary of uh, some stuff that came out of the um, after action report that uh, we found in doing some research for this. So. Uh, Starts out with a quote, firefighter Mark Berry volunteered to assist, volunteered, really? <laughs> I wasn't as smart then. <laughs> okay, Mark Berry volunteered to ascend the stack and recon it from the top. This ascent began, began up a stationary ladder outside the stack to a platform partway up. Then he scaled a contractor's ladder to the top. He described the ladder as, quote, homemade, held to the stack with thin wire and unsafe. He used this ladder for with fall protection provided by a steel cable that the contractor had in place. Firefighter Barry hooked his harness into that cable. Once at the top, he could see the patient hanging on a cable about 75 feet below the opening of the stack. The patient was motionless and did not respond. Barry also found that the steel cable he was using as a safety was only held in place by the weight of a block and tackle hanging inside of the stack. What, what went through your mind when you saw that? I'm glad the ladder didn't didn't fail because it, it was just where they had the uh, the, the person that had um, was using a bosun's chair. He was hooked into that into that cable, and that's what he he is uh, his equipment. He came off of and fell. So that stat, that cable was just laying over the top of the smokestack. So it provided no safety protection whatsoever. So if you'd come off, it would have pulled right out of the top and down. You got we got the e-ticket ride to the bottom. Absolutely. So uh, the after action report goes on uh, to say uh, a little bit later, Lieutenant Prudent ascended the ladder to the top. He used a safety climb technique, which kept him attached to the ladder as he climbs. Did you know about the cable at this point? Um, there had been some radio traffic about it. And it I, I had listened to it a little bit, and um, that's why I used the, the lead climb method to attach to the ladder. And like Chief Barry, as I'm climbing, I'm seeing that this ladder is held by basically like baling wire to a lightning rod that's running up the side of the stack. And in, in that business, that's pretty common, as we find out. Obviously, it's not something acceptable in the fire department means, but uh, for that industry, that was pretty acceptable. But when I got up top and looked down and saw that, that cable, I think I asked Mark, was you climbed this? This was your safety? That's all that's holding <laughs> you up here? You know, it, it was just, it was pretty frightening to see that that was all that, that's what he was counting on, not knowing any different, not being able to see it. Right. Um, back, back to the report, he and Barry positioned themselves straddling the rim of the stack. At one point, Lieutenant Prudent had to maneuver around a lightning rod to his right. During this time, he lost the security of being able to straddle the stack. So I'm assuming you weren't even tied in at that point. Was there nothing to tie into? No, I was able to do that, but I can tell you, Robbie, I sat there for a while and had to think about how I was going to get around that lightning rod. And Mark was straddling it and could see the entire lip. And probably about 12 or 14 inches down, the, the interior liner of the stack had come up, so there was a groove in it. And he, Mark, instructed me, you can put your feet in that groove there. And so I undid my safety from the ladder, put my foot in that groove, and kind of slowly slid around, just hanging on to the top rim and slid around that, that um, 
lightning rod that was sticking up there. Uh, but I believe I may have still been able to have had one of my lead climb ropes hooked to the ladder, I believe. But it still, it was pretty tricky just hang, hanging on by my feet and my fingernails up at the top. It, it took me a while to get around that. That was one of the most difficult things I had to do. Mm. <coughs> Mark, it, it, it says in here you tried to make contact with the victim but didn't get any response. You, you were still going in that kind of rescue mode. You didn't know what right. specifically you had. What was the conversation like between you two when, when Jerry got to the top? Well, I guess it was a few minutes because Jerry ultimately got assigned into plans when he arrived on scene, mm. I think. So yeah. um, the reason we were going into the rescue mode is because when we arrived on scene, some of the first information we were able to get during our size up was they were communicating with the victim through the stack. They had some holes that they had put inside for some uh, missions monitoring equipment. And so they were having conversations with him for a little while and they stopped. So we knew that, you know, in relatively short period of time that, um, that he, he was still talking to some people. So when I looked down the stack, I could see a silhouette. I was looking down into it, and it was a dark, but you could st I could still see a silhouette of them, and I called out to them and yelled to them. There was no response. But that was the reasoning that we, I guess, kept it in, in, in the rescue mode. Yeah, we stayed in the rescue mode until you physically made contact with him, and then we, yeah. but at that point, switch into recovery mode where we were at. Really there was no difference. There's nothing we could have done any different. Yeah. But I, I, do, I do remember when I was I was up there and then Jerry got up to the top and I remember the first the first thing he looked at me and said this is not good I'm like I'm like I know I'm sure but there, here we are I'm sure there was another expletive or two <laughs> smashed in there somewhere yeah at, at certain times there was some wait time I think maybe we were hauling ropes up and I looked at Mark I believe I said you know how much annual leave I have. <laughs> Uh, apparently you can't use it right then though that's that was the challenge uh so uh, yeah jerry you, you mentioned you were in you didn't get assigned to actually doing the rescue you started out in plans what was uh, what was all that like yeah i came on the second do engine so we were a little bit behind mark was in the, that's in his first do and um chief butcher i believe or chief ellswick had assigned me to plans to come up with a first second and third plan or a b and c plan on how to remove this uh, guy from this stack and uh i was working with um uh, chief parrot he was there he was actually i think one of the original folks there and i forget what they had assigned him i think he was signed plans as he, well he as actually plans. had plans yeah. but I, I was assigned to to come up with alternate plans and willie rice was a technical advisor he was our tech rescue guru and it's you know started had a tremendous um, uh, influence on starting our program and he's he's up at that intermediate level where mark had climbed up a, a, a normal ladder and got on a platform and then climbed up that that other ladder and parrot was somewhere else and by the time we had gotten together the, the only thing i could think of right away was a helicopter and you're at the power station there's high tension lines right near there, so that wasn't a very good plan to look at. And and you know they're going down inside of a, a chimney that was, what maybe 15 foot mm -hmm. diameter at the top. Right. But um, I, I still didn't have at that point an idea without being able to see what plan A was going to be, much less B and C. So once you got up there, though, you you started. How did that plan? What was the next steps once you guys got up there and kind of got at least secured or comfortable sitting as comfortable as you can get sitting on top of a 300 foot stack what was the plan like from there well i think it was we were coming to the um, decision that it was the only way to go in there safely was going to be to to go down rappel down on ropes um i think there were numerous ideas that were floated um and then this just really we coming from the bottom but the rigging and the it would just be a tremendous undertaking. So I think we realized it's the safest way to get in and to, um, to to get to the victim and get them down to the bottom of the stack once we made contact with them was going to be coming from the top down on ropes. But still, logistically, that was quite the undertaking because there was a lot of rigging that had to get done. We had to get ropes up and enough rope to go all the way down, all the way to the bottom of the stack. So, I mean, it was, it was a challenge. That and I, I don't know if you're going to talk about this later, but Mark was at Station One, 
Oh, no. I, yeah, I forgot um, about that. He was at Station he, 1 when the call he came. He and in. I were uh, working on the department had tasked us with, re or uh, I guess either that or some other person, company had tasked <laughs> us with writing a, uh, rewriting a confined space program because uh, we had been actively involved in teaching confined space through the county's industrial program. And then, as uh, everybody here in the room, most of us had worked for a couple different private companies teaching confined space. Um, at that point, we were in Virginia, we were about 10 years into the confined space standards, the OSHA regulations that came out after the Tigerlene tank explosion when that confined space really grew. And I think that's what Mark, one of those things he was, was focusing on was it, it was a confined space. So when he went up the tower, he went up with a full body harness on, which was standard practice if we were dealing with confined space. Um, and he had radioed for me, or I'd gotten information just to wear a sit harness. So once I got up to the top, he had to go back down that ladder. The same ladder the he same climbed. same ladder. And yeah. then back up the ladder again. But what, yeah. we had, what we did to make it a little bit safer for him is we had, were able to haul one of the rappel lines up. And by that time, they had, had gotten people inside of the tower at the base. And they were an anchor. So Mark hooked a, I guess, a prussic mm -hmm. to that rappel line. And we were working the opposite direction. So that the rappel line was his safety which allowed him to climb down a little bit quicker, get switched over to a class two harness, a sit harness, and then he came back. back up. Yeah, brought some rigging equipment with us yeah. and some Edge Pro and some stuff that we needed. But, I mean, the other options, that which would have been, in, in a lot of cases, and I think it's our choice for rope rescue, would have been a lowering system to lower us down there instead of us having to repel. But just like he said, logistically and communication-wise, that would have been a nightmare. One of the challenges, too, on this the top of the smokestack was um, the outside wall came up, and then it was like on a uh, incline. So it was like a you were sitting on an angle. So the top of the stack, and then as it went towards the inside of the stack, it was probably on a 45-degree yeah. angle. So, you know, it wasn't a flat surface. Something nice on. and comfortable to sit yeah, on. Yeah, you know. yeah, exactly. <laughs> like a lead edge. Yeah. Um, so what were you anchored to? I mean, you, uh, obviously, there's not a lot to anchor up on the top of this t tower. Right. Did they anchor at that platform right. on the outside? Well, I think as Jerry talked about, Willie Rice, and most anybody who's affiliated with any technical rescue in, um, in the state of Virginia and, and, and beyond knows Willie's background in technical, in technical rescue. And Willie was on that platform, which was the highest point of stationary ladders um, that we could get to before the temporary ladders went up. And I think that was at the 50-foot or the 150-foot yeah. level yeah. of the stack. Yeah. And so um, Willie was there, and so he was going to – he was rigging all, – all the rigging and the terminal anchors for the rappel system were on that was, – was at that level of the 150-foot. So they were anchored, and then they went up the remaining distance of the tower and then over and then down inside Into the tower. the bottom. Yeah. So uh, now you've you've both gotten up there. Mark's gone down, back up. Yeah. Uh, changed harness, got a little bit more safety uh, pro in place. Uh, what was it like getting off of the top of that and then rappelling down inside the stack? Who went first? I went over first. So um, Jerry and I kind of we said some talked a little while, but our plan on what we wanted to get done, how we were going to do it, who, who, who had what role and what we were going to do. The plan was for me to go to the patient and Jerry was going to stay up above it. And then ultimately we would load the patient over onto Jerry's system. Um, so uh, once we finished getting all the ropes in place and then um, the rope situated in the edge pro, we got clearance from command to go ahead and all the, everything had checked out with all the different, um, components of the, the incident command system where everybody was working and it, everybody was ready for us to go so um, we agreed I would go over first and then lock off and then Jerry would would follow and then we would uh, and we would repel down towards the victim when Mark went and, and locked off I checked his equipment and then I did the same thing and he was he checked all of my equipment before we proceeded so down back to the bottom. backing yeah. up safeties on each other absolutely yeah. I mean, and we, we've always trained that way did you work with us at Virginia Power doing any of the rope classes with John Crosby? I'm not sure. There was a Virginia Power had hired John Crosby, who you had on your first show, who was again a, a 
tremendous uh, wealth of knowledge. He had a, a private contract with Virginia Power to teach their fire brigade folks some vertical rescue uh, because they had a, a um, huge stack at Mount Storm Power Plant in West Virginia where the workers would have to climb was nothing but a vertical ladder. And they'd have to go up and replace either sensors or light bulbs. And they started asking corporate, what happens if one of us gets hurt up here? How are you going to get us down? So they tasked John with uh, designing a rope rescue course. And he came up with a 40-hour, uh, probably close to a technician-level class. At, back at that time, it was 40 hours. And we used to teach it at Virginia Power at at the Dutch Gap station. Yeah, and they was had a training a, center. Yeah, yeah they had a high-tension poles back there, so we had worked on those. And uh, back then, at that time, John was paying 20 bucks an hour to teach. That was, you know, good money, and it was a whole lot easier to get off. So I, I would take off the whole week during the daytime and go teach. And I, I probably taught 10 of these 40-hour rope classes, so we were all very comfortable with it, and – with Mark on the dive team, we did rope work there. And uh, uh, again, we had a good shift. We did some technical rescue work, rope work at Station 14 a lot when I was there. So we, I was very comfortable once I got on that rope. How get, about the ladder? Get, getting around that lightning rod and off of that ladder was the, the worst part. But right. th th once we got our, got ourselves hooked into our rope and our equipment, it was just a, a typical rappel. Yeah. I think well, as soon as I went over and loaded, one of the problems we had was, we, I guess because the rope went up so far and then it went down, and there was some slack in it. So once I loaded it, all of our edge pro shifted. Yeah. So we had that angle on the top of the stack, and the, uh, and we were just using, I think, just pieces of ho hose. Yeah, fire and, hose. Yeah, probably. fire hose, <laughs> and, um, and all that shifted off, so we lost the edge pro. So we had to, as soon as I loaded up, we had to um, – I had to find a way to get my, the pressure off of my system so Jerry could reposition the uh, fire hose. So I was able to take a prusset cord, and there was a bolt head on the inside of the tower, <laughs> and I wrapped the prusset cord onto that bolt head and just was able to get enough pressure off of the rope system to Jerry could re get the uh, the uh, hose, hose protection yeah. under there so our, our ropes won't sit against that angle of that. Brick, we didn't want to rope concrete was it was, was it was masonry, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it was it, the exterior was brick, and then it, that slope was was masonry or just yep. probably concrete because yep. it was double walled, right. and it was you know filled in between mm -hmm. that created that angle. So that that top lip was a pretty sharp angle that we were concerned about for for chafing. Right. And then Mark, you you did you rappel all the way down to the victim before Jerry comes in? No, no, we, Jerry came in and and right uh, after you got yeah. And once we got in, and um. And then we, we both went in, and, and I'll tell you, you know, and I, just to take a little sidetrack here, probably back in like 1990 or 1991, we started training with Henrico Fire, doing some tech rescue training. And so we got to train with a lot of those guys over there, and they they were called to the scene, too, to back us up. And in the event, you know, if, if something went wrong, we had a second technical rescue team. So once Jerry and I went over, uh, Willie had a – firefighter come up to the top of the stack and it was Larry Bourne from Henrico um, and it was you know reassuring to see Larry's face there when Jerry and I were getting, re getting ready to go down knowing somebody was going to be there managing that and you know and that goes back to the regional training initiative because we had started with them we had trained with Larry and, and the rest of the members over at Henrico so that that was uh, good good to have as well yeah what did you find when you got to the victim uh well he was deceased he was deceased. What, uh, what was keeping him from hitting the going all the way to the bottom? Was he in a was he on that bosun's chair? Or? Well, he he was sitting on a bosun's chair, and um, the bosun's chair was hooked into that cable we talked about originally at the top, and um, then he also had a class one belt just around his waist, and that was hooked to a cam device, and there was another cable that went down the stack, and on that cam device was. Um, is what his safety was. And what it appeared what happened is that hook that the bosun's seat, uh, seat was in didn't have a little safety latch on it. So some kind of way he must have loaded it or did something and it came off of that, um, came out of the uh, block and tackle. And then the only thing he had at that point was his class one harness with that cam device on the cable. 
Well, when you looked at the cam device, it was worn. And the teeth where it normally would bite down into the cable and give you the friction to grab, it was, it was, it was very worn. So I think when he loaded it, it failed, and it just started sliding down. And where he got to the point where he was at, it just grabbed. And I think that's what, that's what. Uh, if you imagine that cam like the old, like the Gibbs Ascender. Right. And it almost looked like a Gibbs, the teeth like that where it wouldn't run a rope, but this was used on slick cable. Yeah. So yeah. he dropped 80 feet before it finally grabbed. And you can imagine the, the speed that he had built up. So you think he came from the top? And oh, yeah. Yes, sir. Yep. Hit the hit that seventy foot mark. That's yep. when the cable clamps, and, and then he stops. And wow. that and that bosun seat was still wrapped around. He was still in the seat. The cable was around his legs. It was still on him, but it was just you know. But the only thing that grabbed him was that <coughs> that cable is what stopped him. Mm -hmm. Remember when when you were checking checking him, and right. you had to manipulate him to get to where you could check a pulse. The bosun's chair slid out from around him and dropped 120 feet, and we had belayers down inside the bottom and that thing ricocheted off the inside and we didn't know what it was i yeah. didn't i couldn't see it and it hit thank goodness it didn't hit one of our guys that were playing wow because uh, it was a it was like a, a, a two, two by, by six or two by ten yeah piece of Ooh. wood that was probably 24 inches long with some steel cable going up to make it a clamp so it, it had some weight to it falling from that distance we could have seriously hurt somebody yeah, i think that. ernie smith was down in the bottom yeah. and i think it brushed it right brushed across him. his shoulder yeah. it, it was very fortunate so it, was it easy from that point to get him out of the off of that safety device and onto I guess Jerry's rig? Well, once we determined he was dead, then Jerry and I took a second to talk about you know there was no real reason to try to do a tie a class three harness around him. We were just trying to come up with what was the easiest way to get a harness around mm -hmm. him to hold him to load him onto Jerry's system. So we you know Jerry was up I guess what you stayed up about three three feet higher. Yeah, I was. And, and so uh, we were able to take some two-inch webbing and then I tied a harness around them, and then I passed that up to Jerry, and Jerry loaded all of the webbing and stuff into his system. Because I think you took a rappel rack with you. Yeah, I used a rack, and you used an eight. Right, because we were going to put him on the on the um, on the rack, so we wanted to have some more. We just friction. made a hasty hitch right. on him and mm -hmm. put him on him, and yep. then but we had to. <coughs> To get him off of that cable grab, we had to get you the know, weight off of him. that. And right. I'm I'm above him, so again, Mark had already had to lift himself up to try to get some slack and rope. Now he had to try to lift this guy up enough to give us enough room to release the, the yep. hook that was hooked to that his cable grab, so we yep. could transfer him to my system. So we just basically just just lifted him up, and uh, Jerry got the got him loose, and we were able to. Then he was completely loaded on the Jerry Simple system. rappel the rest of the way. Then it was easy. Right. Relatively. Yeah. Right. A couple of other things that you haven't talked about, Robbie. Again, we were we were very – felt like we were very up on our confined space stuff as well because we'd been teaching it and working with it. And going back to plans, one of the things I just remembered that I talked about, um, Chief Shorter was there, and he was a safety officer. And I had, I had told him in passing – Hey, we're in a confined space. We need to be concerned about our atmosphere. We need some SCBA or supplied air if we're going inside of here. And Mark and I talked about that sitting up on the top. How in the world? One, SCBA is not going to probably last long enough. How are we going to get through here with in wearing a SABA system, get it from the ground up here to be able to go back down inside the stack? Um, plus the additional weight. Of plus it. the weight of it. So... Shorter advised me that he said there's a steady flow of air flowing up through that chimney, just like a normal chimney. He said it's a strong draft that's coming up. And as, as Mark said earlier, where they his coworkers had talked to him through those holes where they put the um, monitoring devices, we had put atmospheric monitors there. We had them on the bottom of the pit, and then I wore one. And the plan was if we needed it, I think they started moving Sabre to the top, didn't they? Do you remember I, that? I think they may have been doing that, yeah. I don't think it ever came quite up to us yet. But that was going to be our backup plan was to they get ready. Sable. But we had, t we had at different levels checking the atmosphere, plus we had one with us. Right. But, um, so, <coughs> you know, we felt felt comfortable. And it, it was. It was a nice draft um, coming up because it was, a f it was like a uh, 
dog box type of opening. You had to get on your hands and knees to crawl into it. And there were folks down there shoveling coal dust out of it to make it a little bit bigger. So there was a good intake at the bottom. It wasn't just a chimney sitting on the ground. It was a big intake that was coming in to provide the air to go up. So Big natural ventilation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, um, I think some of the documentation I looked at, you guys were also worried a little bit about uh, death investigation because, you know, obviously an industrial accident, PD or OSHA is going to be wanting to do. What Did you do anything in particular to protect evidence, if you will, or? Was it more about let's get him out of here and let them worry about the investigation? No, everything that he used um, was confiscated and taken to a room and locked up at Virginia Power. And OSHA was there while we were there. Uh, They showed up on site. Uh, So really not only were they looking at the contractor, they were watching what we were doing as well. And that's where Larry came in to play a lot and helped because he was able to derig the contractor's block and tackle and work while he was already so nobody else had to climb and he was already up there and de-rigged that and then we took the boats and share his harness <coughs> his uh, belt and this um, the, the uh, cam device all of that was uh, I remember I, I'm somewhere I've got pictures of that stuff that it yeah. was it was taken in a room and OSHA and the police came in and looked at it and taking yeah. pictures and it it looked like something, the rope that they were using, it looked like in his harness that it, it had probably just been laying in the back of his pickup truck in between jobs, exposed to sunlight, water, rain, and um, it was just in very, very poor condition. Gotcha. But, you know, he probably used it for years and never, had never an needed it. Never needed it. Yep. Um, looking back, looking specifically at this incident, is there anything you think you could have done different or if you had to do it tomorrow besides taking annual leave for that? <laughs> is there anything you'd do different? I wouldn't do it again, especially at my age. <laughs> now. No, certainly it's a young man's job. But, you know, I think, um, you know, Jerry and I are here talking about this and I guess kind of like we were the ones that rappelled down into the stack and kind of got a lot of the uh, accolades for doing that. But there was a lot of work, a lot of people on the scene yeah. of that call that were doing a lot, of, a lot of good things to make it successful. You know, we talked about Steve Parrott and plans. He was working on redundancy and a rescue plan in case we got jammed up. We had Captain Rice uh, uh, there doing the rigging, you know, and then all the other people at the stations and that were brought in and, um, and they were doing logistical work and rigging. All those people played a key role. And... Uh, certainly contributed to the success of it and again I go back to training that we've done in Chesterfield you know you were there in the early 90s we put the first rescue in service at station Mm -hmm. 14 and we had done some regional training with our partners over in Henrico and so um, fortunately for us I think we were prepared for it and um, you know it was certainly a learning opportunity because we did learn some stuff Uh, maybe it didn't go as fast as we like to have but it you know Knowing now uh, that the, it was a recovery operation, I think the uh, the little bit of delay that it took to get in there and the and the speed that we went was and Aaron on the side of safety was most appropriate. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, and, and I've got a lot more training in the rope uh, rope work than I had then, and and experience with training. I haven't run a, any a few more rope calls, but nothing like this. But I can't think of any other way that it could have been done any better. Like Mark said, we it maybe could have been sped up a little bit, but it would have required more people taking that chance coming up to the top, I think. Uh, and you see it gets a little crowded up there. That was the delay in, in feeding that rope, two ropes, up and over, up and over. Uh, but I, I can't think of any other way that we could have done this not that we did it perfect, but I, I just can't think of I don't know of a way that we could have made it any any better. No. I really don't. No, you know, if you look at it from an outcome perspective, we there was a lot of opportunities for people to be hurt or injured yeah. significantly, and nobody was injured, to my knowledge, on that whole call. And uh, and we got the, vi- the victim down safely. So yeah. uh, if you look at it from that perspective, and uh, we followed OSHA guidelines, we followed our training, our policies and procedures that our department had in place. So, uh, you know, we did it. <coughs> We had a good incident action plan developed and strong incident command system in place. So 
all the things that you train and practice, um, you know, you go to put them to work and it makes a difference. I think what Mark just said about following the OSHA regulations, that's a good testament because OSHA was there. They were seeing exactly what we were doing and um, never questioned it. And afterwards, we never received any report, you know, obviously no citation for mm -hmm. us. This company was was cited for some OSHA regulations that they violated, but um, uh, and again, it, it at at the end it was a recovery operation, so it it didn't need to be any quicker. Right. And something we didn't cover, you know, when, uh, Chief Barry talked early that we were treating it as a rescue because his coworkers had talked to him, but that communication they had was before we got in there, and that was the last communications. The autopsy showed that his spinal cord was severed or deviated about three to four inches, which probably severed his spinal cord because that that belt, his spine took the full force of that 170-pound man falling because it was around his, his waist. waist, nothing to support anywhere else. So he was laying sideways, and that, that belt uh, severed his spinal column. So. And uh, you mentioned quicker or you know maybe that I'd, i'll just kind of review this alarm overview page it's in one of the reports it said uh, time of alarm is uh, 1353 uh, on location 1404 personnel inside the smokestack which i'm going to assume is when you guys started rappelling in was at 1640 and confirmed 1093 which is the confirmed fatality at 1643 so just under an hour no a couple hours, couple hours. to get to him and 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 address that so um, some of that <laughs> not a lot of that, some of the time is just eating up getting to that part of that facility it's, it's a huge facility yep. as you're aware of uh, it's not easy to get around to try to find somebody that can tell you where to get and then to move to the other side you know that that takes some time and to get the equipment stage um, it's and we we've that particular stack has since been torn down and they've got stacks over there now that are 600 foot tall. And I know of two calls that we've run over there for people stuck in the up at the stack. But the new stacks have elevators there you on go. the exterior of it. It's a, like a one-person elevator. And that's how we've been able to go up. And the, the, le the two calls that we've had over there is you take that elevator up and bring somebody else down. <laughs> A little more comfortable than climbing a yeah, wire-tied ladder to a... 200 to 600-foot climb is a whole lot of difference. Yeah. So, Well, uh, just the last thing about this call and um, in the aftermath of this, if you will, um, the department decided to create an award, and it was the Medal of Valor. And uh, you two guys were the first award recipients of the department's Medal of Valor for the work you did that day. And I know you guys both are humble enough that you say it was a team effort, and Mark mentioned all the other assets that were there, but... Uh, I want to say thanks uh, for for that effort, and I know since then it's been a tradition that a Medal of Valor award winner present the Medal of Valors going forward, and it's my hope that we can get some more award winners on here too to talk about their stories. But uh, I'm real excited that you two were my first Medal of, Medal of Valor <laughs> award winners to to be on the podcast and sharing that story with us. So actually, Mark was the first, <clears throat> just because of my last name. Yeah, I alphabetical. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. Well, one of the other things um, I've been asking people kind of as we wrap up that uh, I've gotten real positive feedback from the, from some of the previews and some of the early episodes is uh, with you guys with 60-plus you know, years of experience in the fire service, you know, you get five minutes with the next recruiting class, recruit school class that comes out. You know, what, what message would you give them to help them be successful in their career going forward? I'll go first. Go. So I guess um, Frank has his privilege, Rob. Is that what it is? <laughs> he was my first supervisor that I mentioned. That. <laughs> yeah, so I heard that. <laughs> um, I think the first thing, and I remember Chief Barfield told me this as a young recruit. He said, never stop learning. He said, the day you think you know it all in the fire service is the day you need to leave. I know now, being in the ops, uh, we try to get out in the district as much as we can with our companies. Just looking at the changing environment and landscape with the construction features. Um, so, you know, there's so much that goes on and so many challenges that are out there. And, you know, you almost have to be experts in so much stuff. But never stop learning. Never stop taking advantage of the opportunities that are presented to you. Again, another great man that I have utmost respect for, Chief Dalzell, told us one day, he said, he said, we're going to give you the car. All you got to do is put the fuel in it. 
So, and this department does provide so many opportunities for training and development. And if you've got the initiative to go out and get it, this department will su will support you. Um, so, uh, that uh, is uh, to me the, the piece of it that you just never stop learning. The other part I would say is make write things down as you go along because now as I'm approaching the end of my career people and you just have these thoughts and things that pop in your head you know we're here talking about some of the things but there's so many that you even forget about but if you know write things down especially significant events that occur that you've been part of uh, because at some point you'll want to reflect back on your career and look at these things and and um, and be able to share them with some people and I think that becomes that becomes important and then um, the other thing too is the uh, is the part about teamwork and camaraderie don't think you're you're not really entitled to anything. You need to go out and work every day to earn the respect of your peers, and um, you should always be trying to do your best and uh, and go in there. So uh, I do want to add one more thing because I've I've mentioned a couple people here, but you know, uh, Chief Eanes was the, he's he hired all of us. There's yeah. not many of us left that even work here anymore yeah. that Chief Eanes um, that hired, but you know the department he built the resources he was able to provide, the discipline he instilled to so many people here, um, and, the, and the tools that we had disposed at our disposal to do some of these things <coughs> just makes such a, a great, uh, provided so much for us as, uh, you know, at the department. So I really appreciate what he was able to do as far as giving me a job here and then also what he, what he did for the organization and helping us. Fortunately, uh, I get that opportunity being in the training division mm -hmm. with recruit schools coming through, and it's it's an unofficial. It's not on their schedule. I always try to get some time with them and talk about some different things. And going back to something I said earlier, I know this is a diagram for probably that our viewers, our listeners can't see, but I'll draw this up on the board, and what this is is a cross-section of a wall of a house. And I'll tell them when they're in recruit school, they're right down here at the foundation. That's all they're going to get. They're not going to get out the side of this box for the 22 weeks that they're in recruit school. But they got to continue to build this wall their entire career. And then it, it turns and you, it, you know, it kind of turns into more of a gradual slope. But you never want to get past that eve or the, that, and, and drop down the other side where you stop learning. It, it's, um, and, and one of my, I, I use this example a lot uh, of somebody that's like this. Uh, and he was a firefighter. He was. How, how many years shall he have? 27? Yeah, probably more than that, yeah. 27, 28 years as a firefighter. And, and within the last s weeks of his career here, he was still going to classes and still learning. And, um, you know, he, he never wanted to be an officer, but he, he was as good as any officer we had, but he was a constant learner. And since he retired, and, and the, 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 he still in the, uh, was in the medical field, and still learning yeah who he's figure yeah go, go figure shelly porter working yeah. in an emergency room who would have thought yeah. that you yeah. know when he was in the station and, and from some of his co-workers there they love him he's great you know and, and he was a great bls provider yeah. I, I loved having him around but uh he, he set a good example and uh, to reinforce what mark said you you've got to continue to learn because things change in this job every day um the um couple other things that uh notes that I put down uh, which is I think it's important anywhere but I, I really think it's extremely important in this organization that's you got to be honest and take responsibility for your actions you can go out here and wreck a 1.2 million dollar fire truck and if it's a true accident and you report it and you tell it and you're honest about everything nothing's going to happen to you nothing you know for the most part unless you're you're you know breaking a law but um the time you you stop being honest, um, it not only hurts you, but it hurts the entire organization because the citizens are trusting us to come in their house with their their money, their jewelry, sitting out. They don't put that stuff away before they call us, and we're in those houses walking around. We've got free roam to go anywhere in those people's houses and businesses, and if we lose the public's trust, uh, we're in a world of hurt, and um, so that honesty goes a long way. Um, another one is showing respect for everybody, um, more so now than, than ever. We have a more diverse workforce. 
Uh, people are different. We're not all the same. And, um, you know, you need to respect that. Everybody's got uh, different different beliefs and different uh, values with that. And um, uh, something Chief Eanes taught, I remember in my recruit school, he came in and gave uh, us 10 different rules to live by, and the big one was to be humble you know, um, about what you're doing. Um, but uh, and in the same time, uh, you know, give praise and, um, and recognition to the others. So. Mm. Great. Great advice, and uh, I'll go back to one Mark said uh, when Chief Dazzle said he's going to give you the keys. It's up to you to put fuel in. It's a shame Chief Dazzle didn't tell you to keep it out of the high water. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, everybody's got to have one thing that they can just talk about that you're talking about. So. That, that's going to be there, the yeah. submarine driver, Mark Berry. Yeah, so. that was a, going to a two-alarm fire, but that was uh, – <clears throat> that's okay. <laughs> and with that, we'll kind of wrap it up, but uh, on a bit of a somber note um, – you know, 2020 was a tough year for everybody, and uh, January of 2021 isn't looking much better. And um, I just want to give a shout-out to a couple of people that uh, that have uh, gone through some troubles in the last um, couple of weeks. And just uh, the other day, our Chesterfield Fire Department lost a uh, longtime Lieutenant Tom Kroll, uh, the first staffing officer, if I, don't, if I remember right, one of the most uh, hated and loved men in the department all at the same time. But Tom <laughs> kept everybody straight and on in the right place at all the right time, and we lost Tom just recently. Uh, Henrico lost a, a longtime uh, firefighter retiree, Wayne Flipper Thompson, uh, and it seems we're losing those senior members more and more frequently, and it's, uh, I just want to take a moment to say uh, we're, we think about them every time we hear about them and uh, wish their families best, uh, but it's not only those fire department members, but it's the extended families. Um, Brett Williams, who's I, I think's worked for every fire department in the Richmond area <laughs> twice, uh, bless Brett's heart, but um, one, another great guy. Just recently lost his father, uh, Amy Perkinson, uh, one of the HR staff and fire admin, lost her brother-in-law. And um, one of the truly tragic stories recently is Eric Wyatt, yes. uh, loss of his wife. So uh, all of them, they're in our thoughts and prayers. And um, it is a family, whether you wore the uniform or were married to the uniform or related to the uniform. You're all family. And uh, there's a story of a police officer this morning. Don't know a whole lot of details about that, but uh, our brothers in the in the law enforcement side, too, going through some tough times. So a special shout-out to those people going through difficult times. And uh, we're, with, we're with them in spirit and in prayer. And um, I know, um, Jerry, you're involved with the Professional Firefighters Foundation, a, a tremendous organization that started years ago. And um, particularly for Eric, um, you started a fund for him and his family and his young kids. Uh, you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, and it's, it's just a little bit that I can tell about that. But uh, our charitable foundation, um, we started it after we had a couple tragic losses in our department. Uh, uh, the, the first one was uh, the terrible accident with um, retired Lieutenant Frank Marseille, who's well-known in the metro area, uh, a, a hunting accident that took his life. And uh, then the passing of um, uh, one of the best one of the best officers I think the department had, and that was Joe Newsom. Um, but at those times, we we wanted to be able to provide the families with and the department with a a, um, a reception following the memorial services, so that we could could all come together and obviously we couldn't use taxpayers monies for that so we were out knocking on doors trying to raise money for that and um, there was five of us are sitting around one day and talking about this it's a shame that this organization we don't have some way to do that that we have to, to run around here you know following a death and try to figure this out so we came up with the idea and started the charitable foundation and uh, we've been very very successful in raising funds and to date, um, we've paid out close to $90,000 to our members. You know, we're not a uh, unlimited cash cow, but um, we've been very fortunate to be able to, to have the resources that we do. And um, I'll, I'll just say this, we are, we, the foundation has evolved, and, and like you said, has, has made a way easy for our members to donate to assist Eric. Uh, and his family and the loss of his wife. And um, I can tell you yesterday, 
the donations shut down our Facebook page because wow. they were coming in so fast. It's a good thing. And we were only have. allotted so many donations through our PayPal account that uh, our treasurer had to go in and, and buy more applications, and I don't know how all that works, but to uh, be able to accept the donations, and it's been a tremendous outpouring to support our brother uh, at, at this terrible, terrible time. That's um, a good thing to hear that, uh, you know, it is family, and uh, I lost a family member not long ago, and it's um, somewhat overwhelming when it happens because yeah. you get inundated with phone calls, emails, messages, and I'm just glad to be part of this family, yeah. so. And, and, and it, it doesn't go away when you retire. You know, we sure. our our foundation covers all of our career firefighters, our staff employees, our active volunteer rescue squad personnel, and volunteer firefighters, our dispatchers, and all of our retirees. And um, I'm going to put a, a link to the uh, to the foundation's webpage in the show notes as well as up on Facebook. So if anybody feels so inclined, uh, certainly support that fine organization and. Uh, I know some of the good work they've done over the years, and it's it's just tremendous and uh, helpful to those families for sure. And on that somewhat heavy note, um, thanks to everybody. Thanks to uh, Chief Mark Berry and Captain Jerry Pruden for being here. I appreciate you guys sharing those stories, all of them, um, even the even the ones about the Firefighter Two test that won't make this <laughs> podcast, but I'm sure will be on an, a future episode. I've got more if you need them. Yeah, thanks, buddy. <laughs> Uh, just so uh, everybody knows how to get in touch with us, uh, we have an email address, firehouselogbook at gmail.com. Uh, Twitter's FD Logbook, Instagram is FD Logbook Podcast. Uh, and you can listen to the webpage or the web, uh, podcast through the webpage, thefirehouselogbook.captivate.fm. And we're on Facebook, and you can search Firehouse Logbook Podcast and find us there as well. But uh, I want to sh- say a big shout out to everybody. We've had uh, three official episodes. Uh, get posted so far and we've had a tremendous amount of feedback uh, and suggestions and ideas and comments and uh, one of the first ones that came out was hey you need to get Jerry Pruden and Mark Berry on to uh, to talk about the smokestack rescue and I'm not I was happy to reply back yep they're on the they're on the list and we're meeting this week so uh, I just gotta say thanks to you guys and thanks to everybody who's listening for the suggestions and, and following along and I appreciate that thanks for having us Robert I appreciate yeah, it good time good to see you again. you too good. man brings back some good memories yep now yep. firefighter two test wasn't a great memory <laughs> i didn't realize it had scarred you so bad yeah I've, I've, that that's not the only one that scarred me brother i'm glad you didn't bring the other one up so <laughs> well we'll talk about that one on another one thanks you guys thank you <laughs>